This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined by Mawera Karatai in Fakatani. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. The swimming over the lockdown, once we were allowed, did its job, and I'm now enjoying swimming properly. That's a good thing. And who have we got to talk to today? Today we have... A very, very lovely lady by the name of Catherine Dallahunty, who everybody who's anybody in New Zealand will know her name. She's made an extraordinary contribution over the years, um, particularly in the environmental space and um, in justice and making sure that the world is a more fair place and um, someone who I have tremendous respect for. So I'm really excited to get to talk to you today. Welcome, Catherine. Oh, kia ora. Kia ora koutou katoa. Nga mihi nui ki a koutou. Uh, wonderful to be here with both of you and with the listeners. I'm in the Kauiranga Valley, which is uh, a valley up behind the town of Thames in the in the region of Hauraki. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm very interested in this conversation because this is possibly the biggest challenge the world has faced in my lifetime and and certainly in Aotearoa we've we've done well but today's news is pretty sobering uh and reminded that second wave is it could happen so um awesome to be here um I've actually loved lockdown <laughs> I didn't think I would because I'm a social butterfly but you know the when you live in a valley as beautiful as where I live, I live in an extremely beautiful place, um, and you have not been home for nine years because I was away in Parliament for nine years. It's just really awesome. I've really got to know my valley a whole lot better, the whenua, the dog, me and my partner. The, the worst thing was not seeing my mokos, my mokopuna, my two grandsons, um, but I've seen them now. But, um, in fact, I'm going to see another one tomorrow, <laughs> going up to Auckland to see another one tomorrow. But, but you know, that... Um, that was the hard bit. Really, it's been a, absolutely um, a privilege, and I've, I've got some projects I'll talk about that I that I helped to initiate in a minute. If the rebel in me can touch a rebel in you, and the rebel in you can touch a rebel in me. Then the rebels we be is gonna set us free And it'll bring out the rebel, bring out the rebel, bring out the rebel
I live in, I was quite worried about all our elders because a lot of us getting older in this. And I, so I sent around through our, our wonderful Sarah, who's our rural delivery lady. I sent a little message to every letterbox in the valley. Um, and, and, and when we were in level four and said, is everyone okay? Does anyone need support? Because I just thought we, we're, you know, we, we're actually out of town. And nobody, everyone seemed to have someone supporting them. So the next step with that network, so I've got about 50 something names on that network was to create, um, to see what we could do for others. So I asked the network, what is um, your capacity to give up, 
to give some food because these people in this valley grow amazing food. Like we have huge orchards, gardens, organic growers, all of that stuff. And it was harvest time. So I just asked everybody for their surplus and we created a little project whereby um, Te Whāraki or Te Mana Waihene or Hauraki, which is the Māori Women's Refuge here, they would come up to our, our little hall and I asked everybody, uh, we did this about five times during lockdown, to bring their surpluses to the hall clean them and bring them to the hall. And then um, Te Whareki took the surpluses and they gave them to about 100 families who had no fresh food. And so I was so happy with the people on our valley. They were so generous. So we managed to get, um, I mean, we grow the most incredible apples, pumpkins, vijos, tamarillos, um, pears. You know, it was just really wonderful um, and some other veggies. And... Um, some people even did baking and made apple pies and Fijo pies and stuff. And so we were able for those to go out to families who literally had no food in the cupboard and they would they were distributed by um by the 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 Tangata Wahine up and down the coast of the of the Hauraki. So I was really proud that we'd we'd done that and it's made me really think about how whether it's COVID or not, there are families with no food and and they need fresh, healthy. They need the best, not the worst. And I'm I'm really I'm thinking now about how we can maybe next harvest make sure that that extra harvest gets out to the people, and I'm sure there'll be a way. Um, so I'm working on that as one of my little projects at the moment. But it was uh, it was a very positive thing to be doing during lockdown, you know, just knowing that we were getting the food out to the people. So that was awesome. I'm very proud of our people. I liked that quote from I think it was the Secretary of Education right at the start of lockdown. Where she said that when they were talking about whether or not people would have laptops for distance learning, and she said yeah. that a, a pandemic doesn't create inequity; it reveals it. Oh, that's so true. It's so true because I was actually on the select committee, education select committee, for nine years, and in that time, we had an inquiry into digital learning, where some of us constantly said to Nikki Kay, who was the education spokesperson at the time, um, she was there on the committee and, and Hekia Parata was the minister. But I constantly said to them, there's no point in all this digital blah if people have no access to resources and if you're just entrenching digital um, divides. But of course, you know, they don't want to hear that. But that's why when we went into lockdown, friends of mine who are school teachers said that they wished they had stuff in um, ordinary form. They wanted books and papers to give to children who did not have computers and homes like it's just it's an incredible entrenchment of as what you just said of inequality people don't have food they don't have access to, to computers they don't have all of the things that those of us who are privileged actually have so yeah i think it's so important to acknowledge that and recognize that we need system change because at the moment um the inequalities in this country are breaking people and they're unnecessary um government has not done anything to help people on welfare except people who've just lost their jobs they have set up a two-tier approach i'm ashamed of that that's not what we should be doing for our people everybody needs enough money to feed their family and in the end charity like it's nice that we gave them all our organic apples but in reality what will change life for those whanau is when they have enough money to feed their own and that's through living wage jobs and benefits that pay enough to live on. So, yeah, I, I'm still pretty fired up about that. <laughs> I'm not over it. Um, and we've got work to do. Um, I really am disappointed that the government has done such a good job on COVID and such a poor job on inequality. Although it has proven that change is possible. 
But all, all of a sudden, exactly. all of a sudden, all of these things which we thought were impossible turn out to be quite possible. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's like the removal of the John Hamilton statue in Hamilton. You know, in my lifetime, we have, and I'm 66, we've never had a really widespread debate about what those oppressive statues mean in this country. And some of them are really oppressive. So George Gray would be one of the first I'd like to see go. And like to have the conversations about place names, about statues, about symbolism. Like that's, I never thought that would happen. And that means we may not get everything we want out of this conversation. But if we can start it, that's actually really exciting because it's been so long. And therefore, you know, the Black Lives Matter issue has been a global catalyst for really positive things, as well as an acknowledgement of the terrible deaths um, that are inflicted upon people of colour um, but by, the, um, by state violence all the time. And I really hope our police stop pretending that they're unconsciously biased, admit that they're racist, and um, embrace the change that needs to happen in this country. So, yeah, I think, I think those kind of things, terrible things like COVID and uh, racism, can actually be catalysts for people reimagining, you know, reimagining, Imagining their communities and the fact that Hamilton is Kitty Kitty Roar, like what a beautiful word Kitty Kitty Roar is. I mean, so John John Hamilton wasn't that beautiful. And, you know, it's like Coromandel. Coromandel, where I live, was a ship from India. It's part of the southeast coast of India. It's got nothing to do with this place, to do with Hauraki. And it also brought terrible disease to this country, a disease that was actually named Te Araki of diseases because it killed so many people in 1820. So, you know, that's not what I want to name things for. I want us to learn to listen to Tangata Whenua. It's not rocket science. Just listen, you know, and see what names would actually, the names that have always been here, often for very beautiful and very powerful reasons. Naming is power. It really is. Uh, and it's the same with COVID, eh? I mean, we... We have this rhetoric of kindness, which is a good thing. I'd rather that we look, stood up and talked about kindness, but I think we need to talk about what kindness really is. Um, it's more than a it's more than a soundbite. It's actually about mm. justice. Um, and you know, if you're not just, um, kindness doesn't really work. It just um, it's just tokenism, to be blunt. Yeah, about yeah. justice. What else I've been up to? I've just been to the high court, <laughs> so um, I, I decided not to fly because I just thought we were still, I'm not convinced by the security measures for social distancing, actually. Um, so I thought I'd drive. And so I just, last week, I drove with a friend of mine from here in Hauraki down to Wellington to the High Court, where we were representing our community um, on the issue of mining, which is an issue that I've been fighting the gold mining industry for 40 years now. Um, it took quite a long time, but not not nothing like treaty claims. So <laughs> some of those have been 125 years, so I'm not, I'm not in in the competition but but yeah we went to the high court because we're challenging the government and a company called a big mining company called oceana gold about not um building another toxic waste dam in uh, in the in the town of waihe so that because the big company this multinational oceania they want to um they want to spread all over our area all over the hauraki and they want to um uh, mine for gold and we say there's really a lot of jobs in mining e-waste. If you want gold, we got tons of gold above the ground. We do not have to make holes in Papatuanuku. All we have to do is mine e-waste instead of throwing it in the in the landfill, and then we can extract. And there's a company in Auckland who I've been in touch with who are just starting. They're called Mint Innovation, and they're just starting out that process. So it's still very experimental, but they can extract gold and silver and palladium from your computer, your phone, your iPad, your laptop. 
and that's wonderful. Let's let's reuse those resources, not dig holes in the heart of towns and in the heart of forests. That's not and create a whole lot of toxic waste. So that's one of the reasons we went to court is to debate that. We'll probably lose. <laughs> you know, I'm not. I'm under no illusions about um, how these things go. We may lose, but um, it, it's important to do these things. It's important to stand up for and be counted for um, for the sake of your grandchildren about these issues. And um, I'm really. I'm really passionate about this because one of the big holes already in Waihi is um, is called Pukewa. Um, they call it Martha Hill, but its name is Pukewa, and it was a sacred monga, and now it's a huge hole. And I know for, like, Ngati Hakul, who I've been to court with, they find that deeply offensive. It's a bit like uh, mm. Whakatane. Like, I've worked a lot in Whakatane with Joe Hadawera and the sawmill workers, um, this, um, you know, Joe, we lost Joe a couple of years ago, but the sawmill workers are still there who've been poisoned by dioxin. My partner wrote the book um, called The Delhi Legacy about dioxin being spread right across Aotearoa from um, timber treatment plants. So he's one of the few people that has told those timber workers the truth about what they were exposed to. And so we did a lot of work with Joe and Kiriyama Akuhatsu, who's a mate of mine and the others, to try and help those people get support and they still are not getting um, ACC or proper health care after being exposed at the board mills. So, you know, I have I have a really strong, and this is not just Whakatane, this is throughout, throughout every old old timber treatment mill or treatment site, all throughout the, the Motu, all through um, to Waka Māori, Te Kau Māori, there, there are these sites. And some of them are getting cleaned up. When I was in Parliament, I managed to persuade the National Party to set up a um, what they call a, a register of contaminated sites that have been abandoned by the companies because, of course, the companies are out of there as soon as they made the profit. And those are being cleaned up, paid for by government. But they'll only do 10 a year, which is bloody slow. And we've got Kopiopio, um, who you'd be familiar with. Um, we've got Kopiopio on that list. Um, but, yeah, we've got a long way to go before we can say we're clean and green. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokadui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, na mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, kataha hau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars in your beloved universes. I'm so grateful to have more time with you. Thank you for having me. It's a great honour and pleasure and privilege for me to have this time with you all. And I'm so grateful not only that we can share these five minutes every day, but also, of course, that we're co-evolving at the same time on this beautiful paradise planet. And for me, I'm just really loving this journey that we're on together. There's so much learning, so many layers of awakening and understanding that we're all moving through at this time. And I'm very grateful, of course, that here we are in Aotearoa, Dunedin, in beautiful Aotearoa, New Zealand. We're surrounded by so much abundant and flourishing life. And we, of course, can act as kaitiaki of this beautiful life that surrounds us and of our own internal sacred universe. So I've really enjoyed today working with the amazing Māori Hill School and we are looking at what they loved from lockdown and what they want to now direct their time and energy towards encouraging at their beautiful school. So of course what they loved during lockdown was the abundance of native birds who came to their gardens and when they moved into level three and had 12 students at the school the students were just blown away by the number of native birds at the school and so they decided that 
with the time that they have the rest of this term and next term and for the rest of the year, they want to dedicate their time and energy towards encouraging more beautiful native birds to visit the school and to be safe and stay there so that these most cherished interactions and connections that happened over lockdown in Level 3 can continue now that we are, of course, in Glorious Level 1. So I'm very honoured to be in my role of educator at Orokunui Eco Sanctuary and able to support these restoration projects out in the community. It's very exciting for me. And of course, it's wonderful for me just to be able to exchange ideas and really support the creativity of the people around me in person, in real life. And I think when we are able to do this, not only is it more effective because we can be physically together and expressing ourselves and communicating in so many ways, but also we are reminded of what we as a species of animal have been doing together for literally billions of years on the face of this planet as we have moved through a myriad of different forms and that is to come together and share new ideas and create change in the environment around us and whilst the ancestral animals in many different forms have done this in many different ways we as a species of animal have of course been doing this for the last several hundred thousand years and we're learning more and more all the time about how our early ancestors and uh, their art forms conveyed knowledge and of course all the time we're finding more and more sites and carbon dating is constantly being revised and so we're looking at many new ways of interpreting the evidence that we have but for a long time we have been enjoying this process of sharing knowledge and that ability to take our observations and our love for the world around us within and then bring them out again in new and inspiring forms for ourselves and each other. So it was a great pleasure for me today to work with all of these students in the senior school, year five and six, and think about the new kind of bird feeders they would like to make at their school and bird houses. And whilst we have many introduced bird species and plant species in New Zealand, of course we want to prioritise our native bird species that are not found anywhere else in the world. And it was wonderful to share my love for these life forms and, of course, celebrate everybody else's love, but also really reflect on all the different roles that each bird species fulfills and each bird fulfills in an ecosystem and how, of course, we are echoing that with our lives. We are all bringing something new. We're all supporting life to flourish in a different way. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be part of the accumulation of knowledge. And just as a river flows and lays down layer upon layer of sediment that it carries with it, material, precious material from its journey as it moves down through the landscape and out into the sea, we too are doing this, of course, with our journey and our lives. We're laying down layers upon layers of knowledge and understanding. And it's wonderful to be a part of that and really support that to take place around me. So I hope however you're flowing and moving today through your landscape within and without yourself, 
that you're really enjoying that sense of all the accumulated knowledge and learning and love for the world that is around us and supports us at all times and I hope you're enjoying adding your own magic to the mix and I'll look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're successfully answering the questions without me asking them. I'm oh, busily <laughs> I, I'm busily ticking them off, so that's working well. Oh, uh, it's the thing about being in politics. So I've been in formal politics for nine years in Parliament, but I've been in informal politics since I was a 15-year-old schoolgirl. And I've always been a big mouth, and I'm proud of that. And I think it's important that we encourage, especially our young women, and we're seeing that all over the world now, young women finding their voice, and that's exciting. Young Indigenous women are leading some of the most powerful um, uh, movements in the world now, and it's really, really exciting to see that, for, for me to see that. And, um, yeah, a lifetime of, um, of activism does does teach you that being silent and invisibilized will not make change. And simply simply keeping quiet about things that aren't right doesn't make change. So it's it's um it's it's important. Like I work for a uh, organization as a volunteer. I'm on the board of a group called Kotari Trust and we run workshops for social change and we've got a center north of um uh, a, a Wellsford. Um so it's um interesting to work with young people and I'm very inspired by the next the, the generation that are a lot younger than me who who were born well after the Roger Douglas coup and actually believe that they can make change because there was a whole generation more like like my my daughter and nieces and nephews age group and who are in their 40s now who were really the first ones to go to university and get a huge student loan which was Roger Douglas's key strategy not to mention the privatisation of the forest that made 18,000 in the Bay of Plenty lose their jobs overnight in the forests. Like, there's a lot of bloody terrible things on, and that generation have been more in survival mode with their debt, whereas I think there's a whole new generation now of young people who recognise that we have to challenge capitalism, we have to challenge racism, climate change is the hugest issue of our time, and now we've got COVID, which shows you whether we like it or not, globalism has really, really sort of interesting consequences. And we are now being forced back into a more local space. And what are the great lessons we can learn from localism? Um, it's not simple. It's not romantic. I, I've lived in small communities most of my life. So I know it's complex to build relationships in small communities. But at the same time, um, we just can't uh, ignore the realities that we're faced with. And it is an opportunity for like transforming our economy has this given us has the yeah. has the pandemic and the response to it given us any clues as to how we operationalize the the think global act local? Yeah, good question. I mean, you'd think so. It was interesting. I, I was on a webinar listening to web, uh, Naomi Klein talk about this, and you know, she was trying to say that Aotearoa was um, a role model for her. That we had the answers, and I guess, I guess, us living here, we we know the we, we know the questions and problems. We don't see ourselves as having got it all sorted. But I, I think what COVID does is opportunity to start saying, um, where does food come from? You know, where is it grown? What do you want to who gets to eat what? Like all of those questions. And I think um, investing in, I mean, even even the idea that you need to see your own country rather than have a bucket list of other countries, um, like really appreciating what you've got. I loved it and locked it when, they, when the supermarket ran out of things. I actually thought that was really good for us. Like having exactly what you want to consume it exactly when you want it. It hasn't really done us any good. 
it's just created the idea that the world's just this big shopping mall from which everybody should be able to just buy anything. And then if you can't buy it, it's your own fault. But I really like the fact that, oh, we might have to make do, you know? And I, I know that's a privileged position. And I don't really believe that that's how people who are dirt poor feel. Of course, they don't feel like that. They, they're going through survival. Survival is very different. But for the rich middle class, hey, you can't have your, you know, your quinoa that's dipped in coffee beans, whatever it is. You know, it's actually not that bad for you. We could perhaps have looked closer at how we live and how we share and how we don't share. So I, I do think that that act local, local is exciting. Um, and I, I think it, it does allow people to be more be more community minded and less focused on um, maybe the connections they've got globally, but more focused on, well, who do I really see? And it tells you about who's lonely. It tells you about who's powerless. And these are really good opportunities for us. But I'm a bit worried that people want to go back to whereas normal is actually about um, excessive consumption, consumption and massive pollution. Our sky was so blue because... All the pollution from Tomaki Makoto, Auckland, wasn't coming across to Hauraki. So I've never seen our sky look so blue during during um, 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 level four. It was incredible how quiet and beautiful and peaceful everything was. And people generally, if they were living in okay circumstances, were generally okay. It's that's a lesson. We don't need a massive consumer lifestyle. Yet during the the level four lockdown and partially in level three. Most people were were talking about that they were enjoying being with family. They were enjoying not rushing around. They were enjoying being able to walk on the streets. Yeah. Well, and yet, as soon as as soon as those things came off, we went back to to party land. Yeah, some of us. Um, I was finding it interesting that the thing that people missed so much was fast food, and I think that rather than it's very easy to be scathing about it, but I think that people were missing uh, not having to cook. And having things that were special treats for them, they were missing those treats, and I, I, that's not what I would miss. You know, I can't, I can't imagine that. But um, everybody's different, and you have to respect that. But I, I, I think during level three and four, uh, some of us are still staying home a lot. Some of us are, you know, I mean, I had, I had to drive to Wellington, admittedly, but really, I'm not travelling very much, and I'm in a number of community groups and networks, and I'm encouraging them to use Zoom and. Um, I'm encouraging them to do stuff online, like the group that I'm working with called Tali Trust, where we're, we, we do believe in kānohi, kita kānohi for, for, for learning, but we also know that when you can't have that, you can still allow, it can be another form of, um, of equity because people who are geographically unable to participate can participate. My group that I'm in here at Coromandel Hauraki, of uh, Watchdog of Hauraki, we do all our course to drive for miles across the peninsula for meetings. Now we do Zoom and you know, we've really got better at it during lockdown. So people are more confident, more competent. We're running some workshops. I'm leading one with a friend of mine soon, which is for quite small groups because they're conversations, not webinars. And our one is called Becoming a Traitor to White Supremacy. So I'm looking forward to running that one. Um, we're also doing climate justice at the time of COVID. And we're also doing uh, solidarity versus charity, which is about welfare. And Sue Bradford's leading that one. So, But what we're doing is just small groups and talking with each other rather than having experts telling everybody. Because some of the webinars during lockdown were amazing, but there was a tendency for it to be, you know, expert panel. And actually, we want to hear what the people mm. think. And people have got thoughts. What do you think are the lessons for those other challenges, the, the perhaps the longer-term challenges? The, you mentioned capitalism, climate change, social justice. Yeah, I forgot. 
Yep. Patriarchy that needs to go, racism, you know, the lot. Can, I mean, can I, we I learn something from how we've responded? Uh, yes and no. Um, the problem is uh, my great hero is Mona Jackson, right? Nati Kahanunu, Nati Paro. And he says that changing the world is an act of imagination. So one of the things that lockdown could give us or could have given us is time to reimagine it's like rather than just think it's about um you know struggle or it is about struggle often but just reimagining the world and i think that 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 covid could be the gift where we reimagine the world and where we, we actually show that people matter more like one of the things i've liked about the government rhetoric is their focus on people you know ashley bloomfield has shown and the Ashley and Jacinda show was a good thing because it showed that people was the most important thing, not how are we going to get the economy, which is supposed to be a servant of people working. How are we going to look after people? And then the rest of it will do after that. And I, I think that's a good thing, that approach. And I think if they applied that approach to racism, but already like Jacinda's made a speech saying that, you know, we're a wonderful country that stands up for human rights and against racism. Well, that's simply not true. That's not true. Our history is not of that. And in fact, you know, as, a, as a, one of the leaders of the West Papua campaign, I cannot get government to do anything for those people who are our neighbours, who are under incredible uh, pressure. Um, you know, there are many, many, many people in this country who've been subjected to racism, which the state has has actually um, inculcated into health and justice and education systems. So that's not true. So I just don't know whether people have got the courage of their conviction. I like to think they, but that means rather than COVID and now normal, it's COVID and let's reimagine the world. But the more conversations we have about this, the better, because I think people are hungry for a better way. And most people are proud of being um, in a country that, that's actually treated people as if they mattered. I think that we're proud of, much as um, the National Party and others are trying to say that we're not, I think we're really proud of what we've done. And I hope that if we have a second wave that we've got the guts to do what we need to do again and go back if we have to go back. But uh, I think the thing is it's it's a little childish to kind of go, well, we'll go back and then we'll get the reward of rugby and fast food. We don't need to look at change. Yeah, rugby and fast food are fine, but actually... Um, we need a deeper change and a deeper conversation. And um, sometimes I think people have been just so stressed surviving pre-COVID and surviving COVID that that the appetite for that reimagining needs to be fostered very carefully and very positively. And if I look at parliamentary leadership, it's not there on that. And I'm, I'm speaking, I'm afraid people, it's somebody that was there for nine years and I know they are followers, not... They did a great job on COVID, but when it comes to actually being brave enough to change the economic structures, the social structures, to our constitution shift towards Te Tiriti o Waitangi, nah, they're not going to do it. So, so is this oh, a moment sorry. where we can use <laughs> that? It. Is it a moment where we can use the leverage of the the, the crisis to, to shift it from being a recovery that people are talking about into a uh, regeneration, a reformation... Well, you know, some of us are trying. Um, we are trying. Uh, I think that there's lots of people trying to do good stuff. And uh, the structures are barriers. You know, the political structures, the election, the focus on what Winston said yesterday, that's not helpful or whatever. You know, we actually need communities. Um, and one of the challenges in the country that's been Parkia dominated for 150 years is that Parkers don't, we're not very good at collectivism and we're not very good at um, getting together and deciding what our collective responses like if you start talking to 
Tango to Finua, it's immediately, well, what's my hapu, Fano? what are they saying? And how we, you know, we get together and we'll have a talk about this. I mean, not for people who've been dislocated from their, from their whakapapa, but for a lot of people, there's already a, a, there's already a collective consciousness there. But I think Pākehā collective consciousness needs to be built. And COVID is an opportunity to say, wasn't it better when we thought of everybody? So to me, that's like a little conceptual way into Pākehā consciousness about collectivity, and I'm all for fostering that, and I think we have to try. Um, that's why I set up my network in my valley. It's like, well, we were all right, but what about the people down the road? And guess what? We've got a ton of food here. And so people were happy to participate in that, and I want to take that a bit further, you know. Um, I had a wonderful experience in lockdown. The young people who live in our they connect uh, – contacted me and said would I start teaching them to treat stuff online um so we have a zoom class that we've been doing every Sunday and they're wonderful young people they make me feel hopeful and they understand all of these issues and it makes me feel really positive but they're very much a minority you know it's not easy um and I don't expect the people who've got no food and no petrol and are suffering from you know trauma it's difficult for people who are traumatized you know to lead change but in the end, if they're not heard, the change won't meet their needs. So, yeah, I, I think social change is a sophisticated matter. I don't think it's a simple matter. And I think it's a matter of there is there is cultural models that, that, that colonization tried to destroy but failed that show you how we can work better together. A friend of mine who's from um, Naitamanihiri in uh, um, Turanganua Kiwa, she was teaching with me at the Polytech there. So I'm a Polytech. Um, tutor or I was and we were teaching social workers and she did a workshop on how tangihanga is the last non-corporatized model of of organizing available and it was really fascinating to see the students just the, the way they lit up when they realized that this was there was no CEO in charge of the tangi you know and everyone had a place and everyone hundreds of people multiple purposes and hundreds of people were looked after in the farewelling of a life or lives in a way that strengthened community roles work got done people um learned from whether they had been in a ringawera in the kitchen or on the pai pai everyone's needed everyone's valued and no one is the boss everyone is playing their roles and that's a wonderful model and so she, what she was trying to do get across to people is that we have these models um but in my culture, you know, it's a struggle because collectivity wasn't ingrained in us as little children. We weren't on the marae watching our big sisters, um, you know, in the kitchen, our big brothers in the kitchen. We weren't we weren't there watching our nannies and granddads necessarily out there making um, making history, you know. So so it's it's um it's it's a big job. We're quite a fractured culture, like all settler cultures, and I think we've got a big job. But I think. The Black Lives Matter has shown many, many young people who are Pākehā wanting to get out there on the street and be counted. Awesome. You know, that's the first step, that moment when you realise, hey, the world's unfair and I can be part of something positive that feels valid and I can be part of that. Liesel Mitchell is a downtown dweller, urban explorer and conversationalist observing city life in lockdown. Hi there, Bubble people. How are you doing out there? It's Liesl here, coming at you from my uh, little spot in the city, loving my space in the downtown zone of Dunedin, um, as I quite often have to comment on. 
Uh, <laughs> it's good to like your space though, isn't it? Like I actually uh, have this lovely little ritual every morning where um, as I get up, I always, um, oh, now this is going to sound really weird now that I share it out loud. It always sounds so good in my head, but once I start to say it out loud, I realize that maybe not everybody else does what I do. But anyway, I'm about to share, so get ready for a little bit wacky. So I wake up every morning, I come out into my lounge, and uh, <laughs> before I open my curtains and things like that, I always just feel the need to greet my little space. And I may have said this before because I do share these things, but um, they do just sound a bit weird when I start to say them out loud, like I just said. Uh, so yeah, I greet my, greet my lounge. Um, <laughs> And, and always, I guess it's an act of gratitude more than anything else. And I do kind of believe that whatever you kind of put out there uh, kind of comes back to you. So even with something that you might consider an inanimate space, like your lounge full of uh, objects that don't care, I do think that there is something to be said about the kind of feeling that you get from uh, a space that's cared for and loved and looked after versus a space that maybe is not cared for, loved and looked after. So I do believe in the fact that if I thank my lounge every morning for being a wonderful space to live in, that um, maybe that lounge will uh, absorb some of this wonderful energy that I'm putting into it. And uh, you might think I'm wacky, but hey, look, I do think that <laughs> some houses, you know, you, you go into a some houses and you're just like oh isn't this just the most awesome vibe or something we use words like vibe you know to explain how we feel in a space that feels good and it might be you could argue it's the sunlight that comes in it's the angle of the windows it's maybe the uh, the furnishings or the way that the the room's been decorated all of those things and it's probably a combination of all those things um, that makes a space feel good but then there are some other spaces, and I know that uh, my friend's my friend's house when I was when I was young, and I'd go and spend quite a lot of time at this this friend's place. I used to always get a a really sort of weird vibe off that house, and um, it was a lovely house. And actually, I realised it was um, it was some of the some of the people in the family that were were the reason for sort of the the vibe. But when they weren't there, the house felt a lot nicer. And when they were there, the house wasn't as nice. Um, but yeah, it was a beautiful home, but I just always felt a little bit uncomfortable in it. It never felt quite comfortable. And so it's sometimes not so much about the space itself being nice or not, uh, how it looks sort of from a physical perspective. Yeah, so I guess that sort of says that, you know, our own spaces that we choose to spend time in and live in, it's really important that we uh, maybe pay attention to what does make us feel good or not feel good. And I know when I was moving into this place just before lockdown, um, you know, three days before lockdown, I sort of suddenly realised as I went into that level four phase that I was going to be in a place that I didn't know and I hadn't spent much time in um, and this was going to be a bit of a make or break like I was either going to love it or I was going to really not like it at all because I didn't didn't know this house at all so um, yeah choosing your space is really important and obviously we can't always choose 
Uh, sometimes we don't have an awful lot of choice, but then maybe the way that we treat that space, the way we look after it, maybe keep it clean, or um, the kind of things we choose to put in that space, and I think literally the kind of energy we choose to exude in that space also makes a difference to how other people feel, and we feel, when we're in these places. So those are my little thoughts for today around uh, how to how to zhuzh up your lounge with a little bit of love. <laughs> Try it out. It might sound wacky at first, but you know, giving your lounge a bit of love every morning, see how that feels. <laughs> I challenge you to that. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful day and uh, we'll talk soon. Take care. Of all of the changes we've seen in the last couple of months, what do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Uh, I think that um, what I hope will stick is that idea that economies aren't the main goal. Economies are just tools for servicing human pe- human beings. And that if we can keep the idea that putting people first, I think I think one of the things that may stick is it's quite good to listen to scientists. They might actually know something about um, um, you know diseases. Like that's quite a quite a clever idea, Donald Trump, but beyond him. But you know, like the idea that science science is important, but also the idea that um, inequality is real, and when you're in a crisis, you you need to work to make sure. And I know this is happening in the health system because my partner is in, um, he's on a disability, the national um, the national committee on disability and health ethics, right? In fact, he's the only disabled person on it, which is kind of ironic. But he's on it, and what they're doing is they are talking with government about the essential. Say we'd run out of vent, um, and we had to we had to ration them. Instead of putting disabled people and Māori last, put them first. And that's a different idea. And I hope that sort of thing's embedded in the health system, that we put the people who've been marginalised, who've had the least support and who need it the most first, instead of going, oh, well, we're wasting life because it should be some young person who's healthy because they've got the best chance. One, you don't know disease. And two, that's not ethical. And so I guess I think if we can... If we can uphold the ethics that we've seen in COVID and the science and combine ethics with science and listen to Tangata Whenua, because I don't think they have been listened to that well. I mean, you know, the Māori doctors have been talking about that. Um, I think we can say those are the good lessons of COVID and, and they are they are a way forward. But I, I'm, I'm not romantic. I, I actually think that the Black Lives Matters is also an opportunity for lessons to be learned in a way forward. And I think... It's, it's equally exciting in, in terms of its potential for us to um, to face up to the racism that's built our society doesn't have to it doesn't have to be that way so I hope those two things and the science survive you know but I, I you know I'm appalled by politicians and businesses who've said oh you know let's use the Swedish model of herd immunity because one it's not scientific and it's not working and two it says economies whoever that means are more important than people. You know, he um the manui, he tangata, he tangata, he tangata. Like, you know, we have to we have to value that, not in tokenistic, but in a real way, and that's what I'm hoping. So I have some questions to end with, and we're nearly out of time, so it'll have to be quick. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Oh, in the last couple of years. Mm, getting out of Parliament still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Keeping my sense of humour. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, this is collective. Um, and I guess uh, I, I'm i also quite sort of, I'm beyond individual success markers, to be honest. I don't really see life like that. I guess the best thing, I've, one of the best things I've done 
which has been successful was that my sister and I wrote a play about growing up sisters, and we've been performing that, and we had full houses before lockdown, and now that we are maybe coming out, we're going to do some touring. Um, and, you know, what, what was the greatest thing was to tell your stories as family, but stories of all talking about women's life experience from the 50s till now. And so that was the fun thing we did. It's awesome. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes, the collection of people doing good work. So you're in our team. What's the superpower that's got you into our mansion? <laughs> uh, uh, well, actually, in, in lockdown, my superpower was ginger nuts. <laughs> I think I ate my whole body weight in genetics. Um but, but I think the other superpower is, I think Ashley Bloomfield said this, was that leadership is the opportunity for collective action. And I think that's a wonderful quote. Um, and I guess for me, my superpower is other people. <laughs> organizing. Organizing is a superpower. And I do that. So you've answered this several times, but I'm going to give you a chance to answer it anyway. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes, it's quite simple. Yes, which means sometimes that you actually break the law. I do that. I got arrested a couple of years ago for standing on land in the conservation forest that I got put, you know, trespassed because I stood in conservation land against a mining company, a private company that's going to ruin that area. Hey, I'm proud. Actually, laws are not in stone. What what is written in stone is L O R E, not L A W. Yep. So yeah, I'm an activist. Proud. So what motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, tea. Um, <laughs> gets me out of bed. Um, I was raised to believe that we contribute. It's a bit exhausting sometimes. Like, I, I don't really feel good if I haven't done something that's in the day that has been useful. I'm trying to do a lot of writing at the moment and reflecting on the very question, like, why have I ended up like this? So I'm writing a memoir. Um, at the moment, the first chapter is called Blue Sky, White Noise. <laughs> it's all about being boat raised to park here. But, um... It's uh, it's also staying in bed, you know, is lonely. Getting up, there's a chance of being a social animal, and that's what we are. And hopefully putting our good where it will do some good. That's what gets me up. So what's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next couple of years? Oh, in question, next couple of years... I want to, I want to, um, I do want to write this stuff. I do want to encapsulate the life of, you know, what it's like growing up in a left-wing family, realising that you're Pākehā, what does that mean in Aotearoa? I want to, I want to try and write about being Pākehā and, and, and do it well, and, and a story that will be useful to people who are young people. They often say, what was it like? I want, I want to do that for them. Um, but I guess, really, it's a different time of life, you know, when you're 60s. I want to be there for my mokpuna. I want to make sure that um, I pass on to them um, what I know and who I am so that when I'm not there, it stays in them somewhere. I mean, these are kind of nebulous things. It's not like some people want to stand for parliament. Well, I've done that. <laughs> I am trying to build some more food rescue enviro treaty work in, in my community, and I think that will be the focus for the next couple of years. But... Um, who knows? I'm up for the adventure. Anything can happen. But it'll be about it'll be about people. It'll be about community and it'll be about whenua. Um I want to save Hauraki from mining, but um, I know that's a long job, past my lifetime. Today I was at the grave of Fitzsimons, her husband. We went to visit her, and um, I was looking at her and thinking, looking at her in the Uripa and thinking, you know, her life was a full commitment to the good. And it doesn't feel like she's gone. And I was looking at her um, thinking, I don't feel like you're gone. Um, but it's just like people like her remind me that, um, you know, when we are still here, they would expect us to keep going. And lastly, any advice for our listeners? 
<laughs> Ginger nuts. Um, <laughs> uh, not really. I, I'm not. I'm not a fountain of wisdom, but I do that. Um, in the end, Che Guevara, I think, said that at the risk of sounding ridiculous, all revolutionaries are inspired by great feelings of love. Love is the currency that makes. So, no matter how um, difficult it is, we need to remember that. Try and work from that place. But change doesn't happen by just um, being nice and talking about kindness. We have to do more than that. So look Mawera. around you, please. <laughs> <laughs> Mawera, any thoughts to close? Um, the quote, Jeanette, um, so you've got Jeanette is in my mind now, sorry, Catherine, um, when you said uh, changing the world is an act of imagination, that really struck a chord with me. Um, and I'm going to go off and have a look for that quote from Wana Jackson. Thank you very, very much for today. That was amazing. Wonderful to talk to you both. Really thank you for thank you for joining us been listening to blowing bubbles positive conversations with people in their bubbles their safe spaces around the world we're broadcast on otago access radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz 
You can find us on Facebook and all the places where you would expect to subscribe to podcasts. We're brought to you by the Sustainable Lens team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We've had contributions from Tahu McKenzie and Liesl Mitchell. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawira Karatai in Fakatani, and we've been joined by Catherine Delahunty in Haraki. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air.